I would ask that you turn in your Bibles with me to our text this morning. It comes from the book of Revelation. So we'll be looking at chapter 22 and verses 17 to 21. Revelation chapter 22 and verses 17 to 21. Revelation chapter 22, verses 17 to 21. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Thus far as a reading of, of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, today marks the end of our study in the book of Revelation. Now, perhaps for some of you, maybe many of you, you in the churches that you've been in maybe prior, you've, you've never heard the book of Revelation preached before. Uh, for some of you, maybe you have heard it preached before, but maybe not under the same interpretive lens from which you have heard it here. For others of you, you have never heard it preached before, and perhaps you are thinking to yourself, I'm never going to hear it preached, and I'm just going to be in limbo the rest of my life over its meaning until I understand it when I'm in heaven. For others, you have heard it preached, and perhaps you still maybe hold to differing views on certain of the passages that we have gone over. Um, I think that is one reason why many people are, are hesitant to preach from it. Because it's, it's hard to find kind of unanimity right over the, the text of this book. But there was one thing that I held on to. Uh, there was one thing or maybe one particular reason why I said to myself, I, I, I feel compelled right, that as a church we, we read together and we study and we learn about the book of Revelation. And that one thing that I held on to throughout our entire study is the promise that's found in the book. It's the promise that's found in the book. right? Believing and knowing that He who made the promise is faithful and true. And He would never go back on His promise, but He would answer that promise. And it's that promise found in the chapter 1, verse 3, where we read this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so we see that the, the book of Revelation right, promises a blessing upon those who, who read and hear it. Right, who come to understand it as it reveals these spiritual realities going on and how we are to live in light of them. Understanding that Christ is coming soon. Right, that the time is near. 
But it also, brothers and sisters, contains a promise I want us to see as we respond in faith to the message of the book as well. So not just the hearing and the reading we are blessed, but by the obeying and the doing of what it is that we hear. Right? Working out that faith in our lives. And so no matter what eschatological position you take, if you can take the major theme of the book away and live by faith the rest of your life in it, you have the blessing of, or the promise of God's blessing upon you. And if there's one thing that the book of Revelation has taught us, I think if there's one thing that we can all agree upon, it's this, that the book of Revelation highlights to us, causes us to be encouraged by the fact that we can know that the throne of God rules over all. Right? The throne of God rules over all. Right? It is from the throne that Christ reigns as King and head over His church. It is from the throne that God exercises His dominion over the unbelievers who persecute the church. It is from the throne that the Lamb of God is bringing about the close of redemptive history. It is from the throne that God is protecting His people spiritually in this world. It is from the throne that God is bestowing grace upon us so that we might persevere until the end, even in the face of of physical suffering. It is from the throne that God rules now over the nations and the kingdoms and the angels and the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. And it is upon that throne that Christ will come and sit on the last day at the end of the age when He comes to judge the nations in righteousness. And if we understand that, right? if we all together can trust in that point that the throne of God rules over all, then as believers, we cannot help but respond to that by living in boldness and faithfulness and obedience courageously and uncompromisingly in the world knowing that the God we serve is sovereign, that He is in control of all things, things that have happened and things that are now presently occurring. And everything that He is in control over is for our good and for His glory. And as we walk by faith, trusting in His most sure Word, we have the promise that He is blessing His people. In addition, though, I hope that in light of what we have read, in light of learning more about Christ, in light of learning more about His glory and our life with Him in the New Jerusalem, that it would also cause us to be more devoted to prayer. Calling out to the Holy Spirit, asking Him to produce within us a more vigorous desire for Jesus. And this is what I mean by it. Not just a desire to continue to have Jesus how we have Him today living in us by the Spirit. But an ardent desire for the immediate presence of Christ when He returns, that we will behold Him face to face and live in His presence forevermore. Many people today, many Christians throughout the world, maybe many of you here today, profess your love for Jesus and say, I can't wait for Him to return, but if we were hooked up to a lie detector test, how many of us would flunk and fail? 
if we truly love Jesus deeply and intimately, brothers and sisters, with a fervent love, a love that we are called to, which is above all other loves, a preeminent love for Jesus, then it will result in your desire to to want Him, not just now by way of the Spirit, but want Him here, around you, filling you up with His glory as you dwell in His presence forevermore. But that is a work that only the Holy Spirit can produce in God's people. This is exactly what we read in verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come! Now, I don't want this call to be misunderstood. It is not the, the Spirit working through the church to command Jesus to come. Right? We command Jesus to do nothing. Right? He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. And so it's the Spirit working through the church to, to, to call out to Jesus, come, but that is not a command. It's a humble entreating of our Savior. By entreating, I mean an imploring, right? a, a begging, a pleading, an asking with a, with a sincere desire to have Him with us. Right? This is a way in which the, the Holy Spirit now acts as our earthly intercessor in our heart, right? stirring us up to, to write prayer to God. And we do this not on the basis of our own will. Right? This isn't our own will. Right? We call out, come on the basis of God's Word, which is God's will. Right, we see in Revelation 22, verse 7, Jesus says, And behold, I am coming soon. In verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. Right, therefore, the church, according to Christ's very own words, praise Lord Jesus, come. It is the bride who, who looks up to heaven to the, towards the bridegroom and bids Him to come and to, and to do what He has promised that He will do. Now, I just want to briefly note that not everybody actually takes verse 17 in this way. Right? There's other ways in which it can be taken. There are some who take verse 17 in the, and the, those three calls to come. Right? The Spirit and the Bride say, come. The one who hears says, come. And the one who is thirsty, come. They take that as, as calls all to humanity. So what it's really describing is the, is the church's call, right? when they proclaim the gospel to, to come to Christ. There's some that take it, take it that way. Uh, the other way to take it is to see that those first two calls, right, the call of the bride and the call of the one who hears, are the call of believers to Christ to come. And that the final call to come to the one who is thirsty is a call to humanity right, to come. Uh, that's the, that's the, the, the predominant view, the second view I've described. And the reason for that is because what's being spoken about in the 22nd chapter. Right? Jesus just said, I'm coming. Behold, I'm coming. And so what's the response to the, of the church in light of what He has said? It is, come, Lord Jesus, come. Right? Come so that you may remove all affliction and suffering and persecution for it. Come so you might cause it to cease and that we might be with you in glory as you have promised to us. We want what you showed us in Revelation chapter 21. We want to be in the new Jerusalem with you. This is the way in which I take it. That the church is told that Christ is coming. And so the church's first and proper response is not to turn to people and say come. Rather, it's to turn to God and say come. 
friends, to turn to God to say, and say, come. Now we'll return to address what that, what that call to the Lord to come fully entails under our third point. Because we'll see in verse 20 that same call to come shows itself again. And so instead we want to focus on the third call to come in verse 17, which is an evangelistic call. There we read this, and let the thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And it's in these final verses, 17 to 21, uh, that we, brothers and sisters, see that there are important things we need to believe, know, and understand uh, as we recognize that the return of the Lord is imminent. It's near. It's soon. Remember what we mean by that, though, right? It's, it's the next event on the prophetic calendar, which is why it can be soon. There's, there's nothing else in between now and His coming that needs to happen. So it's soon. It's near. It's, it's imminent. And so our first point then that we want to look at will be the call to hurry to the Lord. Right? The call to hurry to the Lord. Our second point, we will call a warning from the Lord. A warning from the Lord. And our third point will be the promise of the Lord. The promise of the Lord. So the call to hurry to the Lord, a warning from the Lord, the promise of the Lord. And so to begin with point number one, a call to hurry to the Lord. We see something in our text that we ought to take notice of. And that is that the whole of the Scriptures, right? the entirety of the Scriptures, right? everything that they are written for, the end for which they are written, is summed up here in verse 17 as the book of Revelation is brought to a close. From Genesis 3.15 on, right, you have the proclamation of the Gospel. Right? You, have, you have people pointing sinners to Jesus. And that happens throughout then the remainder of the Scripture, doesn't it? And so it shouldn't surprise us that at the very end of the book of the Bible, that we likewise see the very same thing. There is no difference. There is no change. Likewise, just as the Bible begins with pointing people to Christ through the Gospel, that is how the final book of the Bible and the final chapter and the final verses likewise ends. But it makes sense, doesn't it, if we realize why Scripture was given to us? Right? Why was Scripture given to us? Right? To reveal to us Christ that we might know Christ and that we might be saved. Right? This is exactly what John tells us in his Gospel, doesn't he? In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says this, Now Jesus did many signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Let us see this also then. Humanity's greatest need is life. Humanity's greatest need is life, but not any kind of life. New life. Right? New life. Through sin, all of mankind suffer the consequences of sin. Which is what? Physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. And humanity now, in light of the fall, understands that there's, there's something missing in our lives, don't they? Right? We, we understand there's a void in the soul which causes restlessness that men are constantly trying to, to, to fill that void with, aren't they? Right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. But none of it ever satisfies, does it? This is a point that Augustine uh, highlights. that You've heard me quote before if you've been to our, 
our evening service. Right? He points out why men are so restless in their souls. And he says this, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in You. He points out that's why our souls are restless. Because they were made to be in communion with God. And isn't this then why the Father sends the Son into the world? So that Jesus would remove the restlessness in that soul of man and fill it up for all who believe in His name. Isn't this what Jesus Himself says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30? There He says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus came to call sinners to be saved. To be saved and and receive the waters of new life and find rest for their souls in Him. But that salvation couldn't come unless the iniquities which brought about the restlessness of the soul to begin with were first forgiven. And they couldn't be forgiven unless blood was shed for the remission of sin. In order that He might satisfy divine justice. And is that not what Jesus Himself came and accomplished as He died upon the cross? You know, it's quite interesting. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 19, in verse 34, we are told that as Jesus hung upon the cross, that He was pierced in the side. And do you remember what comes out of Jesus when He's pierced in the side? Blood and water. Blood and water. Now, yes, literally, blood and water came out of the side of Jesus when He was pierced. But we have to ask, in Scripture, what does blood and water symbolize? Forgiveness and newness of life. Right? That is exactly what Jesus accomplished as He hung upon the cross and died for our sins. Forgiveness and newness of life. Just symbolized by the shedding of blood and water. But, brothers and sisters, how are people, though, to come and to drink of that water and to receive that blood? Well, they have to be made aware of what He did, didn't they? Right? This is where the, the, the call of the, the Gospel now must, goes, must go forth. This is the task of the church then, isn't it? Right? To, to preach Christ and, and Christ crucified. In Romans chapter 10, what does Paul say? He, asks, or he first says this, uh, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then doesn't he start asking some rhetorical questions? Where he says, well, how are they going to believe in Him in whom they never heard? How are they going to hear unless there was a preacher? How is uh, the preacher going to go unless he is sent? And what does he conclude with in verse 17? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And so that invitation in our text in verse 17, to to come and drink to the sinner is likewise a reminder to the church that we need to continue to preach Christ until He comes. Right? Because how does the sinner come to faith? It is through Word and Spirit. Through the Word and Spirit. Right? Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. How does He draw somebody? Through Word and Spirit. It is the word that the chariot rides upon. Excuse me, it is the, 
It is the word that the Spirit rides upon like a chariot, right, into the hearts of people, regenerating them, right, causing them to, to, to be enabled to have their, their eyes unmasked and to see and perceive the precious nature of what is being offered to them and to, and to come and to drink of it and to thirst after it and to receive it. It's only when sinners have their eyes open to their sin that they can understand their, their need for Christ, their need for new life, their need for His blood, their need for the waters of new life. Only then can the sinner come, right? Thirsting after right things, right? Not silver and gold, but after the riches that are found in Christ. See also then in verse 17, brothers and sisters, the extent of the call, right? The extent of the call. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Right? No man can stand before God on the judgment day and complain. For the invitation goes out to all. Right? The invitation goes out to all. It is proclaimed indiscriminately to all men. And before that final judgment blow comes by Christ at the end of the age, now is the time for everyone to hear and to believe and to repent. Right? And to receive the gift of eternal life. Because the message of the book of Revelation is clear. Right? Either now you will come to Christ by faith looking towards His mercy, or when He comes to you at the end of the age, He will come in judgment mixed with no mercy. Right? That's what we see. I want us also to see, brothers and sisters, how Jesus is offered to the sinner. He is offered without price. Right? He is offered without price. And so there's no excuse for anyone. He's not just offered to the rich or someone who can afford Him. He's the Savior for everyone who would believe in His name. And think about it. What can the sinner, whether he be rich or poor, offer to God that He actually wants or needs? He is the Creator of all things. He is the, the God over all. All things are already His. He doesn't need anything that we have. And so we need to see that as we as we receive that gospel invitation, that what is not happening is God is not bargaining with the sinner. Right? He's not saying, you do X, Y, Z. You bring this to me, and I will give you Jesus. No, brothers and sisters. Jesus is too precious. Right? Jesus is too valuable. That There is nothing that you have that could buy Jesus. Many people don't say it, but they live like Jesus is for sale, don't they? They think, well, if I do enough good works, right, if I, if I store up enough credit in the piggy bank, right, Jesus will be mine, right, God will give him to me, right, they act as if Jesus is for sale. But to this one, they will miss out on these waters of eternal life. Because the only water that is offered comes without price, right, to the one who comes with Empty hands. Knowing that they are nothing. Knowing that they deserve nothing. That they have nothing. For we are nothing but guilty and foul sinners before the Lord our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is to them that the waters are freely given as a gift to come and to take and to receive by faith. This leads us to point number two, which is a warning from the Lord. Please look with me at verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. 
And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, oftentimes, isn't it true that we've heard others say, maybe we've said it ourselves, about the entirety of the Scriptures, that we're not to take from it or add to it. And that's a true statement. Right? We're not to take or add from any of the Scripture. But in the context of our passage, is that what it says? No, it's talking about the prophecies of this book. Right? He's talking about the words and the visions of the book of Revelation that are not to be taken from or added to. Right? Those revelation, or that revelation, or those visions that God gave to Jesus to give to the angel, that the angel gave to John to record for all of the saints. Now this warning actually mirrors a warning from the Old Testament. It mirrors a warning that God had given to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And so, please, if you would, turn with me there. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And we'll begin in verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, that the, that the, Lord, the God of your fathers has given you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Now, keep your finger there, because we're going we're gonna to turn back there in a minute. But we have to ask in light of the warning of the book of Revelation and in light of, of reading a mere passage to that, we have to ask, right, is there any reason then for us at all to ever teach the book of Revelation? If this is the, the warning. I mean, this is a highly debated book, isn't it, brothers and sisters? And so is, is, is God saying that if we err in our interpretation, that we're going to miss out on the tree of life in the holy city? No. No, that's not what he's saying. Remember, he's already said, blessed is the one who, who reads aloud and, and hears the words of this book. He, he wants this book taught amongst his churches. So what does he mean? Look back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. This time we'll look at verses 3 and 4. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who have held fast to the word your God are all alive today. And so we have to ask the question, who was it that were judged? It was the faithless and the disobedient. And this is the same idea then that's being brought out in our text today. It's not that if you err in your interpretation, if you get something wrong in your interpretation that you're going to lose out on your salvation. And we know that as, as believers, we cannot lose our, our salvation if, if you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ because He's covered all the weaknesses of our sin, hasn't He? Right? So what does it mean? Well, rather, it's a warning then to those who have crept into the church who are faithless and disobedient. Right? Think about our, our, the book of Revelation, our study in it. Right? He's talking to folks like the Nicolaitans back in chapter 2 right? who, who came in and willfully perverted the Word of God. Right? He's talking to those folks back in chapter 2, like Jezebel and her followers, right? who deliberately distorted God's Word 
and taught the exact opposite of what he had proclaimed to his churches. And he gave them and he gives people today like them opportunity to repent. But if they don't, if they persist in their faithlessness and their disobedience, well then, brothers and sisters, what do they show? They show that, that the tree of life and that the holy city was not theirs to begin with. Right? That they have no share in the eternal inheritance that God has set apart for all those who belong to them. Why? Well, because they show themselves to be no saints at all. Because the distinctive of a saint is what? The distinctive of a saint is that although imperfectly, we are characterized as those who keep the commandments of God and who keep our faith in Christ. This is what we read in Revelation 14.12. The angel says this, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Who are the saints? Those who keep the commandments and their faith. And keep their faith in Jesus. And so we see in this warning, in verses 18 and 19, though the, the jealousy in which God guards His Word with, don't we? Right? He's, he's telling all in the churches, do not tamper with My Word. Why? Because His Word is perfect. His Word is pure. It's sufficient. It is without error. It cannot be improved upon. It is divine. And it is final, brothers and sisters. And so anyone who would seek to add to the words or, or take away from them, he says, you will receive the, the plagues that are written in this book. Right? You, will you will be judged by God now and on the last day. Why is that? Well, because they reveal themselves to, to not be lovers of Christ. To not be those who are indwelt with the Spirit as the Spirit causes us to walk in the statutes of our Lord. Right? This is what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you do what? Keep my commandments. The one who willfully, though, distorts his commandments, the one who perverts his word for their own gain, shows that they have no love for Christ and they have no love for his word. But this also, brothers and sisters, should teach the church, and in particular those who handle the word, how careful we are to be with it. Right? How serious we ought to approach it. We have to approach it with, with fear and trembling. Being zealous for the Word of God. To be careful not to add to it nor take away from it. Now when we speak about adding to it, what do we mean? Well, in the context of the book of Revelation, we need to remember what was going on. Right? What were the Nicolaitans? What were Jezebel and her followers doing? Right? They were promoting uh, idolatry. They were promoting immorality. They were promoting false teaching. They were promoting spiritual adultery. All things which Christ told the seven churches in Asia Minor to stand fast against. Right? They were coming in saying, you can have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Right? You can belong to the world and you can belong to Christ. You can compromise with the world and still be a saint. And Jesus said, no, the two are inconsistent. You can't. This is why He promises that to the one who is faithful until the end, He will... Give them the crown of life. Why? Because he understands if you don't compromise with the world, then in the first century period, you could suffer and die. And that's why he promises that to them. So they would be faithful to the end. To take away from the words of the book would be what? Well, that would mean to, to bring deceptive teaching into the church, which then would invalidate right, the word of God. That would invalidate it. Make it null and void. And so we need to see ultimately to add to it and take away... It's pretty much saying the same thing though, isn't it? It's saying, don't change God's Word. 
Don't mess with it. Don't tamper with it. Right? It is perfect. Uh, not only, though, is this a warning, then, brothers and sisters, to those who would add or take away, but we need to see this likewise as an exhortation to the church, isn't it? Right? To contend for the faith. Uh, to, to guard the deposit that we have been entrusted with. Right? What are some of the ways in which we do that? Well, first, we need to humble ourselves in submission to God's Word. Right? We need to detest what's being proclaimed by Scripture itself. Right? We are to correct the one who wavers. And ultimately, we have to exercise church discipline, right, if need be, in order to protect God's Word and God's people from those who would seek to, to twist and to pervert and to distort it. This leads us then to our third and our final point, which is this, the, the promise of the Lord. The promise of the Lord. Look with me at verses 20 and 21, please. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. What do we see here? Christ promises one final time at the close of the book that He is coming again. How does the church respond? Amen. Amen. Which means, so let it be. And then they cry out, Lord Jesus, come. Are we seeing, brothers and sisters, that the the fact that Christ is coming again soon is a reason for sinners to hurry to Him in faith and repentance. Right? We've learned thus far that the fact that Jesus is coming soon is reason to warn the faithless and disobedient in the church to repent before He returns or they will be judged. And finally, we see here that the fact that Jesus is coming again soon is reason for us to cry out to Him to fulfill His promise towards His church. I want us to see this, though, in that promise. That the promise that Jesus gives is not something that you and I can now be indifferent to. Right? The promise of His coming is not something that, that you and I can now be on the fence about. And frankly, I think that many, if not most, believers are more than indifferent and more than on the fence about the return of Christ. They don't want Him to return. At least not during their lifetime. But think about how sad that is. Think about how sinful that is. And only you know if that describes you. Right? So many people don't want Him to come back. Why? Well, because they have a vision for their own lives. They want to go to school, go to college, have a career, you know, build up some things for themselves. Other people want to have what? They want to have children, you know, be married, have a nice house, grow old with their spouse. Right? Some people want what for their life? They, they just want to live in the world and, and enjoy all of the earthly pleasures of the world. But isn't it sad that so many of us would actually be happier to live in a sin-cursed world away from the face of Jesus than to live in a perfect world before the presence of our Lord and Savior? I mean, we have to ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, when's the last time you cried out, Lord Jesus, come, and you actually meant it? But how can we not? How can we not cry out to our Lord, come, Lord Jesus, quickly? As believers, how could you not want Him to return and put an end to all evil and sin? How can you not want Him to return to make you perfectly Holy and pure. 
How, brothers and sisters, can you not want Him to, to come so that His glory would be manifested before the entire world? How could we not want Him to come so that the, the glory and honor that is due to His name can be shown as every knee bows and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord? How can we not, brothers and sisters, want Him to come as, as we just think about for a moment what it is that He has done for us? How He suffered and died so that we might live with Him in that life everlasting. And he died, brothers and sisters, for you and I. He suffered. He was humiliated. Not so that we would live on earth apart from Him all of our life. He did all those things with the end goal of bringing us to where He is today and that we might dwell with Him forever. And so you need to understand when, when we say we don't want the Lord to come right now, what we're saying is, Lord, we don't want your, your plan and your purposes to be fulfilled. Right? Or we, we, we want them to be, but during our timeline, which always means not now. Right? That's how we oftentimes feel. But we need to understand, brothers and sisters, that, that when we cry out, Lord Jesus, come. What we ought to be saying is, come whenever you please, Lord. Come whenever you want. Come whenever it brings you the most glory and honor, irrespective of ourselves. That's how we ought to call out, Lord Jesus, come. And so for most of us, if not all of us, later today we need to be hitting our knees in, in repentance over our attitude about the return of Christ. Praying that the Holy Spirit would make it a more desirous thing for us. That we would want Him to come and to bring us to where He is. Because let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. When He returns, He shall not disappoint. Oh, to behold the face of Jesus. You're going to be filled up with such joy and such happiness that is unfathomable right now, that is incomprehensible, that I cannot describe to you in words. Whatever right now you find most important, Whatever it is you are looking forward to, whatever it is you have on your calendar for this year or the next or ten years down the road, believe me, when Jesus returns, you will forget about it all. And it's the promise of God's grace that enables us to, to call out, Lord Jesus, come. It's the, the grace of God that enables us to, by faith, receive His Word and obey it. Right? It's that grace that helps us to want what He wants and desire what He desires and to long for what He longs for and to speak the words He tells us to speak and pray how He tells us to pray. Even when the, the world wants us to do the very opposite. Listen to what John says in verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Right? The grace of God is that free favor and love of God that He shows toward unworthy sinners who He has set apart and called for His service. It's that boundless grace. It's a limitless grace. It never runs out because the one who bestows it is infinite in every way. It is that grace, brothers and sisters, that we are to be looking to every day. Understanding that it is that grace that is sufficient to get us through every single circumstance we find ourselves in this life. It is that grace that makes we who are weak strong be able to run the race into the end. It is that grace that enables us to cry out, Lord Jesus, come! It is that grace that keeps us coming to Jesus and keeps us in His arms until the very end. 
And so as we draw to a close, though, this morning, we have to ask ourselves, have you come? Have you come? Jesus, Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. There are a lot of reasons, brothers and sisters, why sinners don't come to Jesus. One is a feeling of unworthiness. And it's true, we are all unworthy, aren't we? But that should never be a reason to keep someone away from Christ. In fact, it's that unworthiness that ought to, to drive us to Christ. So today, if, if you have not been driven to Christ, or you are feeling unworthy, and it's keeping you from, from coming to Christ, I implore you right, to, to come to Christ. For He says that the one who comes, He will, he will never cast out. Right? And only then will you be able to cry aloud in prayer with the rest of the church, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Because only then right, will you, like the church, thirst for nothing more than the return of our Lord and Savior. But until that great day, brothers and sisters, we need to understand one thing as believers as well. And that is, we must never stop running to Jesus and coming to Him ourselves. Daily, we must be coming to Jesus drinking of the waters of eternal life. We must be coming to Him in total dependence and reliance, coming to Him by faith, coming to Him for grace and mercy, coming to Him in fear and humility, coming to Him daily in prayer and in repentance. Coming to Him weekly, together, corporately, crying out to Him with our eyes towards heaven, sincerely desiring His appearance as we open our mouths and speak the words that we feel in our hearts and that we want most in this world, and that is this. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for the effectual call that You have, by Word and Spirit, drawn us uh, to our Savior and allowed us to, to drink of the waters of eternal life and to be cleansed by the blood of Christ having the forgiveness of sin. We thank You for our justification and for our sanctification. Lord, we pray that You would continue to excite the church to to perform the task that we are called to do, which is to proclaim Christ until He returns, seeing that, that sinners everywhere have only one hope, and it is Jesus Christ the Lord. Likewise, Father, we pray that You would forgive us of our sin for not being desirous enough of the coming of Christ, maybe because we are too attached to this world or the things of the world or the people of this world. And so, Lord, we pray that You would help to to lessen our attachment to these things, Lord, and that You would grant to us greater attachment to, to Christ and the things that are above. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.